Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Halloween H2O, 20 Years Later. Written by Robert Zappia and Matt Greenberg, and directed by Steve Miner. Although, as always with the Halloween franchise, the credits only tell a small part of the tale. In this case, that tale begins with the unsatisfactory performance of Curse, which was enough to make the Weinsteins decide to consign the franchise to the dreaded status of direct-to-video. Although, honestly, that was an unfair stigma even in the 90s, and it's far more unfair now. For some reason, a theatrical release is still prized as a mark of prestige and quality, even though streaming services are releasing so many amazing blockbuster features we don't even have time to watch them all. Don't get me wrong, I love the big screen experience as much as the next cinephile, but the amount of sheer fury that gets directed at anyone releasing their film on the small screen is hyperbolic and unfair. But with the decision made, Robert Zappia, who was at the time a television writer with a few episodes of different series under his belt, was brought in to pitch the new direct-to-video Halloween movie. He came up with the idea of a copycat killer whose obsession with replicating Michael's crimes causes the real deal to break out of jail and confront him at a private all-girls school, which frankly sounds like a great idea for a movie, and I kind of wish I could pop over to the nearest convenient parallel universe to see how it turned out, but that screenplay was abandoned when two real-world events hit the Halloween franchise like a meteor. The first, as you may have guessed, was Scream. Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven's metafictional tribute to slasher movies came out in 1996 and immediately made the horror genre hip and hot and viable again after about five years of neglect. That's not to say there weren't great horror movies being made in the early 90s, but most of them were being called thrillers or science fiction movies or simply being released to very little interest at the box office. Scream, though, wore its heart and its influences on its sleeve. It wasn't afraid to tell the world how great it was to go to a sleepover and get scared shitless by Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees, and it reignited audiences' interest in horror. I've done a whole episode on Scream, and another one for each of its sequels, so I won't go into too much detail here, but suffice it to say that after that movie came out, everyone wanted to do a slasher film. And as luck would have it, the same people who made it also held the rights to the crown jewel in the slasher genre. Suddenly, a big-budget theatrical Halloween sequel became viable again, especially because of the second big event. Jamie Lee Curtis, John Carpenter, and Deborah Hill had all decided to come back and pitch an idea for a sequel. Remember, this is only about five years or so after Carpenter tried to buy back the rights in conjunction with New Line. His involvement with the series was far from over and he'd stayed good friends with Curtis and Hill over the years. The three of them suggested a film that explored the idea of Laurie's trauma as a survivor of the attack, an idea that the Weinsteins loved, but one thing they didn't love was John Carpenter's salary demands. He was asking for $10 million, in no small part as compensation for what he saw as being woefully underpaid for the first movie, and the Weinsteins flatly refused. So Carpenter and Hill both walked. 
fact. But they still had Curtis, and Curtis had a personal friendship with Steve Miner, who you may recall from our episodes on Friday the 13th, Part 2 and 3. So Miner was brought in to direct, and Zappia was ordered to rework his script around Laurie Strode, from a treatment by Kevin Williamson, because the Weinsteins really wanted this to be Williamson's take on the franchise that inspired him, but this was squarely in the middle of his busy period thanks to Scream 2, Scream 3, The Faculty, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Dawson's Creek, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Glory days, wasteland. Look, he was a busy man. He basically suggested some changes to Zappia's story, then did a few uncredited rewrites on the finished version to soften some of the characters and sharpen up some of the film's logic, which wasn't enough to get him a writer's credit, so the Weinsteins made him an executive producer so they could put his name on the posters. The Weinsteins might have missed out on a Carpenter-Williamson collaboration, but they still had horror royalty Jamie Lee Curtis returning to the role that introduced her to audiences. It certainly wasn't hard to sell that. And speaking of Curtis, she returns as Laurie Strode, here hiding out under the pseudonym Carrie Tate. For the most part, I'll be referring to her as Laurie for simplicity's sake. Since her last official appearance in the franchise, she'd become an A-list Hollywood leading woman, with films like Trading Places, True Lies, and A Fish Called Wanda to her name. One of the very real reasons this was seen as such a big deal was the understanding that she didn't have to come back to horror, although she was beginning to transition to roles as mothers and female authority figures in things like Freaky Friday, she was still very much in demand and remains so to this day, and could simply have buried her early horror roles the way Jennifer Aniston did with Leprechaun. Joining the cast as Laurie's love interest, Will, is Adam Arkin, son of legendary character actor Alan Arkin. And let me tell you, the family resemblance is distractingly strong. Arkin's been acting ever since his appearance in a short film his father made, People Soup, which wound up on riff tracks because of its weird and quirky nature. It was very 70s. But he's gone on to earn his stripes with over a hundred appearances in film and television, including the 80s Twilight Zone, Hard Time on Planet Earth, and an uncredited appearance in Lake Placid. He's also become a respected television director. Non-horror fans, though, would probably be most likely to recognize him from his long-running role on Chicago Hope, and his appearances on Sons of Anarchy. Unsurprisingly, for a post-Scream slasher, most of the rest of the cast is composed of photogenic 20-somethings who look like they could have stepped right out of a WB-slash-CW show. And in one case, that's literally true. Michelle Williams, who plays Molly, was appearing in Dawson's Creek as Jen almost at the same time she was in this movie. She was also in Dick, the comedy based on the Watergate scandal. Get your minds out of the gutter. But I'm a cheerleader, Brokeback Mountain, Shutter Island, Oz the Great and Powerful, Venom, and its sequel Let There Be Carnage, and she's recently shown up in the movie The Fablements. And if you think that's big, you should hear about Josh Hartnett. He plays John, Laurie's son and Molly's boyfriend, getting the introducing credit this time out. He'd only just graduated from high school in South Minneapolis a couple years earlier, even though everyone who saw him act could tell he was going to be a big star. And sure enough, he did The Faculty, The Virgin Suicides, The Infamous Town and Country, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Black Hawk Down, Pearl Harbor. Basically, he became a household name and a famous face virtually overnight. But that wasn't what he wanted out of acting, and he began to transition to character roles and unusual parts that challenged him more as a performer. So you get him in Sin City, you get him in Penny Dreadful, the TV show not the movie that apparently prominently features shock jock Barry Sims, and you get him in 30 Days of Night, which sounds like a very confused sequel to 40 Days and 40 Nights, but it's actually a chilling vampire movie I'd like to get to someday. 
almost introduced in this movie as well, she'd previously done 15 episodes of the TV show Another World, is Jodie Lynn O'Keefe as Sarah. She's been in quite a few genre projects. She was in The Crow Salvation, another Dimensions film sequel that had a troubled release. Gosh, it's almost like the Weinsteins aren't really very good at their job and tend to just shout and meddle and throw tantrums while sucking up to the famous people who make them look good. But she's probably best known for her role as Cassidy on the long-running series Nash Bridges. She was also prominently featured in Prison Break and the show Hit the Floor. And Adam Hanbird, who plays Sarah's boyfriend Charlie, acted in a few shows and movies. He's the Tate in Little Man Tate and the kid version of Robin Williams' character in Jumanji before transitioning to writing. He's probably best known in that capacity for 56 episodes of the show The Morning After and the video game Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery, which was written in 2018 shortly before Rowling's descent into transphobic awfulness. That just leaves us with Chris Durand as Michael among the main cast. Durand had just finished up an uncredited role as Ghostface in Scream 2 as part of a stunt career that includes A-list hits like The Doors, The Crow, The Last Boy Scout, Star Trek Generations, Armageddon, The Mask, The Lost World, Pearl Harbor, and Captain America the Winter Soldier, as well as the cheap and trashy horror flicks we all love like Uncle Sam, Lawnmower Man 2, Class of 1999 2, and Maniac Cops 2, and three. Truly, a man after our own hearts. That's normally our cue to jump into the story, but this is a post-Scream horror flick, as I keep saying, so we get a few famous cameos to show how much everyone loves scary movies these days. So Nancy Stevens returns as Nurse Marion Chambers from the original movie, giving us another legacy connection to the 1978 classic, and invoking the deceased Dr. Loomis by proxy. In fact, in some versions of the screenplay, this was going to be Loomis's daughter, but then Stevens became available and reprised her part. And Janet Lee, who's both Jamie Lee Curtis's real-life mother and the actor in one of the most infamous sequences in all of horror, the shower scene from Psycho. She pops up here as Norma, Carrie Tate's secretary. We'll talk more about her legendary career when we eventually do Psycho, but trust me, she's been in some big stuff. LL Cool J also stars as security guard Ronnie, because at least one of your cameos has to be a musician who wants to be an actor. But in this case, it works out well, because LL Cool J's personal charm translates very easily to the screen, and only a year later, he'd be getting a leading role as Preacher in the iconic killer shark movie Deep Blue Sea, a personal favorite of mine, and everybody else's. He's since gone on to do several other movies and TV shows, including a whopping 310 episodes of NCIS Los Angeles. And let's just get Joseph Gordon-Levitt firmly fixed in our head as we finally jump into the story. He was already well-known to audiences in 1998 from his guest appearances on the hit show Roseanne and his long-running role on sitcom Third Rock from the Sun, and he would soon make the jump to movies full-time with 10 Things I Hate About You. Another personal favorite of mine. But like Hartnett, he's transitioned into serious character acting, with thought-provoking genre movies like Looper, Inception, and the extremely weird neo-noir film Brick to his name. Movie podcast Junk Food Cinema turned me on to Brick. I can't really cover it here because it's a hard-boiled murder mystery and not a horror movie, but it is well worth watching. And why are we talking Joseph Gordon-Levitt? because he's the next-door neighbor of Marion Chambers, returning to her home in Langdon, Illinois, on October 29th, 1998. God, I love how easy they make this franchise to date. It's like the anti-Friday the 13th. 
She's cruising through the early evening on autopilot until she finds a pile of broken glass on her doorstep, and I love that the non-diegetic music, which has been playing Mr. Sandman like in part two, suddenly screeches to a halt as she notices the signs of intrusion. It really gives the moment a nice threatening resonance, like she's idly got the song stuck in her head and suddenly she's aware of the moment and of her own terror in a way that she wasn't before. Incidentally, most of the score for this movie is just Marco Beltrami's score for Scream repurposed and reused. Originally, John Ottman was supposed to write the score, but most of his music was thrown out by the Weinsteins when they decided it didn't match the tone of the film. With no time to write a replacement, Beltrami's score was pressed into service as a hasty substitute. Seeing that her porch light has been broken, Marion peeks in through the front door. But rather than do something stupid like go inside and look around, she goes over to the neighbor's house to use their phone and call the police. Teens Jimmy and Tony, played by Gordon Levitt and Brandon Williams respectively, decide to investigate despite Marion's reservations, and Jimmy goes inside armed with a hockey stick as his weapon of choice and his own belief in his teenage invulnerability to shield him to have a look around. He doesn't find anybody, but he does discover that the office has been hastily searched, and that Marion has beer in the fridge, which he helps himself to. By the time he comes back out, it's dark, and Marion is frustrated by the lack of police response. She's also concerned that the office has been ransacked and her lights don't work, because one of the running themes in this movie is that people have very good instincts about danger when they actually realize what's going on. She goes up to check out the office, which turns out to belong to Dr. Loomis, and finds out that the file on Lori Strode has been emptied out, and there's really only one person who'd have an interest in Laurie Strode at this point. Marion runs back to Jimmy's house, hoping for safety in numbers, but Jimmy's got an ice skate embedded in his face all the way up to the sole, and Tony's at the rear entrance with a knife in his back, and standing behind him is the man we all expected to see, Michael Myers. Wearing yet another different mask, this time altered to avoid any resemblance to William Shatner after a lawsuit filed by the actor was settled out of court. Marion runs, and as the police show up at the house next door, it looks like she might just escape. But despite her best efforts to fight back with a fireplace poker and shout for help, Michael swiftly dispatches her and steals the car in Jimmy's driveway, escaping as the police begin to investigate the disturbance next door. The cops are left with her dead body, her connection to Loomis, who is living as a patient in her house until his death in this version, and Loomis's connection to infamous spree killer Michael Myers. Quickly realizing that there's a real threat here, again, I love that nobody acts willfully dumb just to advance the plot, they warn Haddonfield that the long-vanished killer has returned as the opening credits roll. They play out over a series of newspaper clippings summing up the details of the case, and a voiceover, Tom Kane doing a serviceable impression of Donald Pleasance, although why that's necessary isn't exactly clear, he's just repeating Lewis's speech from the first movie. One thing that's very notable about these clippings, which we've kind of got to talk about if we're going to make any kind of sense out of this movie, is what they don't mention. Specifically, there's nothing in there about Jamie Lloyd, The Curse of Thorn, The Man in Black, Tommy Doyle, The Carruthers Family, or even the hospital fire that killed Michael and disfigured Sam Loomis. Really, it's almost as if none of the other sequels ever happened, which was essentially the production team's intention. That wasn't always the case. In Zappia's original draft, entitled Halloween 7, The Revenge 
Revenge of Laurie Strode, which is a great title that they honestly should have used. Laurie's faked death in a car accident was a direct reference to Halloween 4, and there was even going to be a scene where she had a horrified reaction to finding out that Jamie had been murdered. But everyone agreed that first, there really wasn't enough time to unpack the emotional baggage that came with abandoning a child to go into hiding, and second, the Thorn trilogy of Halloween sequels wasn't really popular enough to merit the extra work needed to weave them into the story they were telling. So Jamie was retconned away, and really, to a large degree, so was Halloween too. There's only one reference to Michael being burned, and he wears no burn makeup on his hands, which was a hallmark of the character's appearance in 4 through 6, and no reference to Loomis's unlikely survival from an explosion. Really, the only thing they took away from Part 2 was the revelation that Laurie and Michael were brother and sister, and that's never contradicted in the original, even though it wasn't Carpenter's intent at time. And apart from the single throwaway line, you said you watched him burn, all the characters act like he disappeared Halloween night in 1978 and hasn't been seen since. Basically, they really wanted to do what the 2018 movie would do 20 years later, H40, but they also wanted to keep the familial relationship between Laurie and Michael, so they just mumbled the backstory and hoped everyone would forget what happened in any of the sequels. Because as I keep saying, the pull of the original is so strong that it keeps warping the sequels back around to an effort to recreate that first iconic confrontation rather than progress along their own trajectory, and Curtis's return is probably the clearest example of that so far. And speaking of Laurie, we come out of the credits to see the classroom of a California boarding school, where an unseen figure finds the shattered picture of John Tate and the name Laurie Strode written on the chalkboard. It's all a nightmare, though, one from which Laurie wakes up screaming only to be comforted by her teen son John. He grabs her some medications, and we see that she's got a pretty large supply of drugs to help her regulate her emotional state. It's worth remembering that back in the 90s, there was still a huge stigma attached to using medications to treat mental health, both because the field was still developing and many of the meds at the time had bigger, more adverse side effects, and because it was still seen as a deliberate suppression of someone's authentic self in order to conform with society's expectations. There's a whole other horror movie that came out just two weeks before this one called Disturbing Behavior that's entirely about teens being given mental health treatments against their will by their parents in order to make them more socially acceptable, which should tell you where we were at in this era. My own dad, who taught us a career for decades, maintained pretty much all the way up through his retirement that ADHD was simply a convenient label slapped onto misbehaving kids to avoid having to punish them. The point is, we're supposed to see this as an abnormal and unhealthy coping mechanism, and certainly it's hard on John. You can see from the way he immediately and instinctively jumps into action as his mom's personal nurse that he's had a lot of practice dealing with her PTSD. That's a hard situation for a child to grow up in, and one that's very unfair to John, even though nobody's really at fault beyond the obvious killer who caused it all. I can't speak too much about this because it's not my story to tell, but the idea of growing up too fast because you had to deal with a parent who's unable to take care of themselves, let alone you, is one that has a lot of resonance for me. It's rough, and I think that it was really handled with a lot of sensitivity and understanding here despite being part and parcel of a lurid slasher movie that was the seventh installment in a long-running series. As they make breakfast on October 31st, Halloween morning, Lori and her son have a tense discussion about the way her trauma is impacting her parenting. The whole school is leaving for a camping trip to Yosemite National Park that afternoon, but Lori is still too uncomfortable with the thought of letting her son out of her sight for such an extended period of time to sign the parental permission slip. 
This here is exactly why Jamie Lloyd can't exist in this version of events. If she's an overprotective, overcautious parent, there's no way she wouldn't make sure her daughter wound up disappearing right along with her. John is frustrated by her attitude, pointing out that he's 17 and more than capable of making his own decisions, having been forced to parent himself quite a bit over the years. I'll admit, this is something of an unintentional laugh line, given that Hartnett was 20 when this film was made and looks like he could have played five years older. And it's clear that things are getting close to a breaking point between mother and son. John shares his frustrations with his friends Charlie and Sarah, neither of whom are especially enthused about the trip apart from the chance to hang out together, and their frustrations are only worsened when it turns out that John's girlfriend Molly can't go either because of problems with a late tuition payment. I will say Hartnett and Williams have very believable romantic chemistry here, even though the part of Molly is pretty woefully underwritten, and their height difference means he gets to kiss the top of her head, which is always going to look adorable to me. Charlie suggests that he and Sarah find an excuse to duck out on the trip as well, allowing the four of them to have a private romantic dinner at the school. Lori watches them through the window as they hatch their plan, trying very hard to dismiss the reflection of Michael she imagines in the glass. The real Michael, meanwhile, has suffered a flat tire at a nearby rest stop. But luckily for him, a mom and daughter have pulled in to use the facilities. They survive only because of mom's happenstance decision to leave her purse on the floor in easy grabbing distance from outside the stall, making it marginally simpler for Michael to just take the keys and steal her car rather than kill the pair of them. It's a chilling, tense sequence that really highlights Miner's skill as a director. He's usually a hired gun rather than someone who conceives his own projects, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have talent to burn. Back at the school, Lori meets with Will, the guidance counselor, after giving her yearly cautionary speech to the students about the trip, and it becomes clear as soon as they close the door on Lori's secretary, who mentions that the girl's showers are clogged, one of the few really overt metatextual moments in the film, that she and Will are having an office tryst. It's a little unusual to see a relationship between two 40-somethings in a horror movie. Typically, we get horny teens like Charlie and Sarah, or maybe chastely romantic teens like John and Molly. I really like the dynamic between these two people who've been around, who have a little bit more of an honest understanding of each other after accumulating some life experience, and who are kind of done with playing games. Plus, it's kind of nice to see a movie that doesn't pretend that sex ends at 40. Will doesn't know that Carrie is secretly Lori, though, and it's clear that he recognizes that she's keeping secrets from him, but respects her privacy enough to give her a chance to open up at her own pace in her own way. They make plans for a lunch date in town, away from the prying eyes of students and staff, even though Norma's flat stare when he emerges from Lori's office makes it pretty obvious that they're not fooling anyone. Normally I do frown on workplace romances in real life, but we don't really get enough details on the school's administrative structure to know whether she's dating a subordinate or just a colleague, which does make a difference. At the front gate, security guard Ronnie is on the phone with his wife, reading out sections from the romance novel he's been working on, and it's safe to say I would watch a whole movie of LL Cool J reading hyperbolic, melodramatic erotica while his wife occasionally interrupted him to ask what size of melons he was talking about when he described the woman's breasts. Any writer who's ever tried to do a sex scene can probably relate to him here. John and Charlie arrive, cajoling Ronnie to do them a favor and quote-unquote accidentally open the gate and let them out so they can buy some supplies for the romantic dinner, in a scene that nicely sets up Ronnie as a sympathetic guy who understands John's plight, even though honestly, the two of them could have just climbed the fence while he was distracted with his phone call. It's not that tall of a fence. 
Ronnie, of course, agrees, ad-libbing, and comb your hair, as John departs. Apparently it was an onset joke that Hartnett deliberately mussed up his hair between takes, not wanting to look unrealistically perfect like too many teens in movies of the era. In town, Lori arrives for her lunch date, and again we see the symptoms of PTSD. She flinches at the sound of children laughing, and once again sees Michael Myers in a store window. But she tries to play it off to Will as concern about losing John, and although he's a little too glib in his banter with her, you can see that there's some sincere care and concern behind his Alanarkin-esque charm. Laurie comes close to telling him the truth, but instead uses his bathroom break as an opportunity to order and down an entire glass of Chardonnay to steady her frazzled nerves. This is intended as a sign of alcoholism, and John says in the subsequent scene that he couldn't steal his mom's booze because she's a functioning alcoholic who knows exactly how much is in every bottle in her house. But there's not really a lot made of her drinking in the film. I kind of like that they don't belabor the point too much. I think they could have turned this into a very serious movie about Laurie's drinking problem, but instead it's given just enough weight to let us know that she's got some unhealthy coping mechanisms without spilling over into melodrama. As Lori leaves the restaurant, she bumps into John, and her line, What the fuck do you think you're doing? is the starting gun to a very large, very public fight about their obligations to each other and her inability to move past her assault from 20 years ago. This is where we get the you watched him burn line. John reaches his breaking point, telling her he can't live in the perpetual shadow of his mom's trauma when they both know that Michael Myers is long dead, but neither one of them noticed the car from the rest stop parked across the street. It follows them back to the school, and now Michael knows where his quarry lives. But it's not dark yet, and the school is still crowded with students. So he waits as John and Molly have an adorable little cuddle in the basement utility room that he and Charlie have set up for the evening's dinner, and he waits as Lori teaches her final class of the day on Frankenstein. And look, I understand that Molly's take on the book is supposed to be foreshadowing of the film's climax, but she is completely and totally wrong about her interpretation of the text. She says that if Victor had confronted the creature sooner, then Elizabeth would still be alive, but the whole reason Elizabeth dies is that Victor goes out looking for the creature to confront it and isn't with her when the monster breaks into their house. I'm not saying Carrie Tate is a terrible teacher or anything, but she should really have pointed that out. Anyway, even when Laurie gives John his long-denied permission slip and tells him to call her when he gets to Yosemite, Michael's still just a mask glimpsed on the edges of the school grounds. It's only when the buses leave at dusk and the campus empties out that Michael recognizes the opportunity given to him this Halloween night. Norma leaves as well, by the way, giving Laurie one last piece of maternal advice about leaving the past behind before driving off in the exact same car she drove in Psycho right down to the license plate. It's a completely unnecessary scene, but I'm so glad they didn't cut it. There's just such a beautiful resonance to the two Scream Queens, mother and daughter, acting opposite each other that it deserves to be there for that, if nothing else. Even if you could wish for a more substantial part for Janet Lee. Michael parks his car right outside the front gate, while Ronnie reads a little more of his magnum opus to his wife. And again, there's just so much charm between these two that I'd love a spin-off for them alone. He slips out of the car and into the bushes, so that when Ronnie goes to investigate, there's nobody there. And while Ronnie's attention is on the vehicle, Michael sneaks into the school and cuts the phone lines. This is also probably the moment where Ronnie would have been killed if this was an 80s movie, but thankfully by the late 90s we were having conversations about why black people were always killed first in order to set the stage and make the slasher feel more physically intimidating, and Michael instead moves on. 
Lori heads back to her cottage on campus, and there's a wonderful moment of pure terror when she outright sees Michael approaching, and closes her eyes to banish what she assumes is another trauma-induced hallucination. She's saved by the arrival of Will, though, who scares Michael back into the shadows, and he promises to meet her at her place as soon as he's checked to make sure the remaining students are safe in bed. Which he does in a scene that has unfortunately not aged well at all due to the rape joke Sarah tells. Although it is neat that they're watching Scream 2, closing the circle between the two franchises as they acknowledge the conversation that they're in with each other. After Will leaves, Sarah and Molly sneak out to meet John, who did not go to Yosemite, and Charlie at their secret party room, using the campus kitchens and food supply to make themselves something of a Halloween feast. Good for Sarah, she says she fully intends to become a Rubenesque beauty when she gets older. Lori, meanwhile, steals her nerves with a little vodka before finally coming clean to Will about the truth behind her mysterious background and all that entails. At first, Will assumes it's all some kind of weird, sexy roleplay scenario. I'm not really Carrie Tate, babe. I'm in the witness protection program, and you have to be a big, strong man and protect me from my scary brother. But it eventually sinks in that she really is the sister of one of the most notorious spree killers at large in America today, and that it's the 20th anniversary of his first attack on her. She goes to get him a drink. I'll assume the repeated utterances of I'll be right back that most of the characters say were inserted by Williamson as a direct scream reference. And as he listens supportively, she realizes that John is now the same age she was when Michael tried to kill her. She tries to call the campers, only to realize the phone is dead. Worse, she finds John's camping gear and realizes he's got to still be on campus somewhere. She, Will, and Ronnie, who's arrived to tell her about the mystery car, head off to find the kids and get them all somewhere a little safer, just in case Michael has returned. And also just in case, Lori brings her gun. Back with the kids, Charlie and Sarah have split off from the others to go looking for a corkscrew for the wine they shoplifted earlier. Charlie finds it, but it slips down into the sink, and there's a wonderfully tense moment where he reaches down into the garbage disposal to get it, keeping one eye on the switch and zero eyes on the approaching Michael. He retrieves the corkscrew without injury, but turns around to find Michael standing right behind him. Hi, he mutters, unable to think of anything else to say. A few moments later, and Sarah finds him in the dumbwaiter with his throat slashed. She turns to run, only to find Michael behind her, and she has to ride the dumbwaiter up to get away from him. He manages to slash her leg, forcing her to crawl awkwardly out of the dumbwaiter when it opens on the upper floor, and then Michael slashes the rope that holds it up, causing it to slam down on her leg as she gets out in a gnarly visual effect that looks very authentically agonizing. Sarah tries to crawl away, but she's so slow that Michael's able to simply go back up the stairs, find her, and step on her neck before stabbing her repeatedly to death. Molly and John finally go looking for their friends and find Sarah dangling from a frayed electrical cord in the pantry that sends sparks coursing through her limp body. Michael then shows up, but the duo fare a little better than their friends, escaping back out of the building through the same window they entered and making a break for it. But Michael catches up with them, and they have to fight and run their way back through the dorms, with John collecting a stab wound on the leg along the way. They unlock the outer gate, but Molly drops her keys, and it's only the timely arrival of Lori and Will that saves their lives. This is where the iconic shot from the trailer hits, Lori and Michael facing each other on either side of a thick pane of glass in a moment of terrified recognition. Knowing Michael won't be deterred, Lori hides her son in the utility room and goes looking for him. But Will panics when he sees someone approaching, grabbing the gun away from Lori and unloading the entire clip into what turns out to be Ronnie, 
There's an awful lot of blood here, but even shallow head wounds tend to bleed a lot because there's so much blood going to the brain. Will is shocked and horrified to see what he's done, but he doesn't have a lot of time to process it because Michael steps out of the shadows and stabs him in the back, lifting him up just like the nurse in Halloween 2 because this is a movie that loves its callbacks. With the odds suddenly and drastically changed, Lori runs for it, collecting John and Molly and making a beeline for the car with Michael in hot, well, tepid, pursuit. It's chase scenes like this that inspired the wonderful bit in the movie Behind the Mask, where the slasher laments the amount of cardio he has to do to outpace running people while still looking like he's walking. There's a tense moment as Laurie tries to get the car started with Michael approaching him at that same measured pace, but they get away and get down to the gate. But then Laurie stops. She looks behind her, knowing that she'll be looking behind her for the rest of her life if she doesn't take a stand here and now. And she opens the gate and tells Molly to drive to the Beckers down the road. Another way this movie remains in conversation with the Scream series, Casey Becker's mom was told to head to the Mackenzie's in a reference to the original Halloween, and to call the cops. Molly and John reluctantly leave, and Lori smashes the gate controls, leaving her and Michael alone together in the arena of their final confrontation. Finally embracing her destiny, she grabs a fire axe and goes hunting. And the thing is, this is a very tight movie. It's only 85 minutes, below the length of most full-feature films. Some of that is due to the decision to cut extraneous subplots, there was a pair of detectives on Michael's trail right up until the very final drafts, and some of it is just the simplicity of the story, but it is extremely short. And easily 20 of those 85 minutes are taken up with this fight. Lori axes Michael in the chest, he stabs her in the arm, they go running into the cafeteria and she crawls under the tables to hide, only for him to fling them aside one by one to expose her to his attacks. She grabs a flagpole and impales him through the stomach with it, but as always he's impervious to pain, and she's forced to flee to the kitchen and hurl an entire drawer full of knives at him to no effect. She even kicks him in the balls. This is the fight we've been waiting 20 years to see, basically. It's only when she manages to get the drop on him and stab him over and over again with a knife in each hand before shoving him off the balcony and back into the cafeteria that she manages to finally incapacitate him. And even then, she goes down to finish the job once and for all. But Ronnie, who turns out to have only been grazed by one of the six bullets Will fired, stops her and pulls her away. The nightmare is finally over and the police show up with the coroner to take the body away at last. But Lori has to be sure. She grabs the axe again, hijacking the coroner's van and driving away in a determined effort to finish off her brother once and for all. He wakes up in the body bag, struggling frantically in an effort to free himself, and Lori winds up slamming on the brakes and sending him flying clean through the windshield. She then runs him over again as he tries to rise, sending the both of them down a steep hill and leaving Michael crushed between the van and a large fallen tree. And then, as the killer reaches out for her in one last attempt to communicate some unknown emotion, she finally swings the axe and decapitates him, ending the saga once and for all. Or at least that's what Jamie Lee Curtis wanted. But Mustafa Akkad refused to sign off on any ending that left Michael definitively dead. The Weinsteins tried to convince Minor to shoot fake footage of Michael surviving, but he refused much to his credit. Instead, it was decided that they would shoot a scene of Michael switching places with one of the paramedics, but save it for the next movie to explain how Michael lived. 
Curtis was unhappy, but agreed to do an appearance in the next movie to show how killing an innocent man affected Laurie, as long as none of the footage was used in H2O. And that compromise adds one more wrinkle to the already tangled story of the Halloween franchise. In addition to choosing where to start, you can also choose where to end. If you like, you can finish the story here, with Laurie Strode a triumphant survivor and her demons finally destroyed. Or if you're determined to see what happens next, you can follow on to the next installment. But as Neil Gaiman once said, that's the real problem with stories. If you keep them going long enough, they always end in death. And will I hang on to this movie? I think I will. It's a fast watch, it's got lots of tension and some compelling characters, and it really does give Laurie Strode the closure we all wanted for her. Even the little 90s grace notes, like the presence of Creed on the soundtrack, don't feel as exhausting as they did back when this movie came out and we were simply saturated with horror movies that looked and sounded exactly like this. I enjoyed this flick, and I'm sure I'll enjoy it again. And if you want to talk about happy endings, the way they misspelled Donald Pleasance's name in the In Memoriam tag, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at, at @halfhorror and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, I really did think we were being comprehensive when we covered the Thing franchise. We did the 1951 Thing, the 1982 Thing, the 2011 Thing. Heck, we even spent time covering the 1989 Things, and that doesn't have anything to do with the series but the title. But as it turns out, there's one last adaptation of John Campbell's original novella still out there. One that relocates the action to a train traveling through the icy landscape of Siberia, and stars horror icons Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing to boot. So we'll be looking at 1972's Horror Express as a final coda to the Thing saga, and enjoying one last trip into the cold with a monster from outer space. See you then.